Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Alright, well so, we've come to worship the Lord, and hear from His Word, and to grow, and reach the heights of Jesus today. I want to remind you that while we are blessed with the opportunity to come here to meet, to worship, and to study, and to grow, that there are those who would yearn to do so. They may not be in your neighborhood, or on your block, or in your family, some of them probably are. Some of them are sitting with us online right now. That kind of thing. But there are those out there in the world in other states and other countries who would give anything. They would love to be able to go to church and to worship God and to hear from His Word. And you say, well, maybe they've heard it before, they've studied it before. They would love to go and hear it if they have heard it before, if they have studied it before. They would love to go and worship and sing that same song. They sing on, maybe their, their worship music consists of just three songs, and they would sing those same three songs in praise and honor to God for months on end. They would love to be able to do that, and yet they're persecuted. And while we think that some of those are maybe in China, for example, and there are those who are persecuted and don't have the right to come to church and worship, come with, meet with the church and worship God, that's true. There are countries all over the world that have that problem. And now, in some places in the United States of America, there are great pressures mounting against churches to be able to worship. Orders that say that they're not allowed to, and so on. It's been like that since the beginning of the pandemic. And there would always be a good reason. I said that before. There always was going to be a good reason why you're not allowed to worship God. But there really is no reason why you shouldn't worship God, why you can't worship God. And uh, so, in my opening prayer this morning, I'll be remembering our brothers and sisters in Christ the world over who are in fear, who are being intimidated not to be allowed to come to worship. And I pray that that will not be us. And at the same time, I pray that those of us who cannot because of health conditions, or those who cannot because of other reasons, whatever they might be, that they would have God's help to press past those reasons and find a way to get it done uh, in a way that honors Him, whatever that is. And we that's why we offer the streaming and the podcast and like that, because some folks, especially in the face of a pandemic, are afraid to be mixed in with others because they have um, suppressed immune systems and things like that. And so we need to be bold in this day. And then there are some pretty cool things happening. We have coming up our Playground Kickoff Day, which is coming up on the first Saturday in October. And we'll have uh, snow cones and popcorn and cotton candy and the playground will be open. And we'll, I guarantee you that we'll be throwing some footballs around out there. Uh, we'll figure that out, something like that. And we'll have to keep people in social distancing and whatever. So. Uh, we try not to contribute to the pandemic, but the bottom line is we're going to have a lot of fun, and we're going to honor God for the gift that He's given us and being able to have green grass. Some of you don't remember, but there was a time when there wasn't an inch of green grass unless it was a weed growing up in the parking lot or something anywhere near our church building. And we have a yard that is just gorgeous. We're blessed with a beautiful yard around the church and a playground, and that is just a wonderful, wonderful thing because we used to play elbow tag on the parking lot, and there was always a skin knee and things like that because parking lots are not comfortable to fall on and now we have grass praise god and so um, we're going to praise him for that have a fun time at that and then coming up is our association annual meeting that's coming up in october first week of october as well and our messages will be there and everyone is welcome and there will be a time of worship and hearing what's going on in our association and um and so hopefully we'll have a good turnout participate in that even though, yes, there will be social distancing, yes, there will be masks, all that kind of thing. We'll honor those rules the best we can without letting them stop us from doing what we're supposed to be doing. So we're here to worship God. We're going to pray now. I ask you to pray with me so that you can pray out loud if you want, or you can pray quietly in your head. But 
We're going to not be distracted by our phones. We're going to not be distracted by our snack. We're not going to be distracted by the person sitting next to us. We're going to focus on God and we're going to pray together. Okay? Here we go. Father in heaven, we do praise you and thank you. You are an awesome God with much power. You did arrange the circumstances under which we live. You have placed us here in this city at this time under these circumstances. And you have infinite knowledge of what's going to happen under these circumstances. And we are grateful to be able to trust you with the outcome of these circumstances. At the same time, Lord, we confess that we have a lot of weaknesses. We are driven like any human beings by human desires that are they're kind of fleshly desires. And then we realize that Jesus is so much more than that. And he calls us out of that, out of that being controlled by what our body might want or by what our eyes might see that we desire. And rather, we're supposed to follow you and walk with you and truly be free. So we're asking you, Lord, for wisdom. We're asking you for strength. We're asking you for forgiveness, which we know is available through Jesus, your Son. We're asking you, Lord, to make us your servants and your church and your light in this day, at this time where you've put us. Thank you that we have the opportunity to meet. We have the opportunity to sing songs. We have gifts among us that allow us to do various things. And then we have people who want to serve you. And the people are doing things like operating the food pantry and doing the, the flight football and, and preparing to have the playground kickoff day and serving others right where they are and under circumstances that they're in. We praise you for all of that, Lord. You are a good God. But we have to ask you, Lord. We have to ask you to, to make us bigger than we are, to make us an outreaching body, a people of love and kindness and grace toward everybody around us to, to touch lives and to encourage one another, but to encourage the people that we run into daily to have conversations about you and to ask people to believe in what really matters. And we know that we can't make anybody believe. We can't make anybody agree with us. We can't negotiate with them to try to get them to agree with us. But we can tell them the truth and ask. And if you've already prepared their hearts, then it will be so. We pray for our brothers and sisters the world over who are suffering persecution, being told, you can't do this, you can't do that, or you can just do this, just so much in service of your God, but nothing more. We know that those inalienable rights that you've bestowed in people, they are, they are not, they can't be taken away by laws of men or direction or guidance. The kind of civil unrest we believe in is when the civil pushes up back against the kingdom of God. And if they would stop the kingdom of God from advancing in this day, then we pray that you will provide all the power and all the endurance and all the strength for us to love despite whatever they might say, for us to worship despite whatever they might say, for us to give and to serve despite whatever anyone might say. Lord, there is no law to stop the love that your people should show to each other, to others who might come, to others who might want to hear. We pray for those who are homebound, those who are sick, those who are going without food, those who are hurting. We pray, Lord, that you will work amazingly in this day and that more people would get saved under these, in some ways, horrific circumstances than would have if it hadn't come. Use this pandemic, use this this difficulty that's happening in creation to honor and glorify yourself and bring people to you. Now we praise you. Fill our songs with the joy that's in our hearts. We've been saved. We love you. We are in re relationship with you. These songs are for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
trying to find my glasses on the socks there. I was wearing them. to get done what we think should be done or we're we're trying to get control of the people around us or we're trying to get 
control of ourselves so that we don't blow up on the people around us or so that we don't collapse in sorrow or whatever. We're so busy, so worried about trying to control everything that's going on that we miss God talking. I think there's probably almost no other reason why we don't hear from the Lord every day uh, in some fashion. And so um, we do this to remind ourselves that we are supposed to be looking. We're supposed to be listening. God is speaking. The Holy Spirit is with you all the time. In fact, if nothing else, the Bible says that He convicts all men of their sins. So whenever you do something wrong or if you think about something you have done wrong, the Holy Spirit is definitely there. And that's if you're not even saved. If you're saved, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit testifies inside you. Your spirit and the Holy Spirit testify together to, to show you, to prove to you, to make sure you know, to witness that you are saved. And so He's doing that all the time. So at least there's that. You should be feeling regularly as you face trials in front of the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside you as the comforter. Uh, he regenerates, he sanctifies, and so on. But then as we go about our day, seeing things and hearing things that speak to us, and I, I, I just like anybody else, I don't do it all the time, but um, or maybe even as often as some people might think that I do, but I do hear, I do see things that strike me and and I would encourage you to do the same. And so now I'm going to ask you in the last seven days, if you share with us some experience that you've had where you heard from the Lord and you saw something and God said, hey, pay attention to that. It can be as small as it happened in a second. Or if it happened in an hour, you're going to have to boil that down for us. Okay? Amelia. I know this person who this person. Okay. Uh, this person.
God might be setting a fire in you to kind of take care of his creation because you were picking up litter in the first building and then he kind of rewarded you by having somebody come and pay you even though that wasn't even planned on happening and then you saw the kids and you can take care of those I think um, I've known a number of people that that really kind of care about God's grace like in our house when we walk we see litter we try to pick it up when we're walking and things like that and the saddest thing under the bush there was about the yeah that is sad they're trying to eat and they're trying to live and people are throwing junk under the bush. Yeah. Maybe somebody could clean it up. The kittens and the kittens have been three days ago. Cool. Very neat. Okay, who else? Well, I have one. Uh, this last week I've been listening to uh, worship songs that when I'm working and things like that, mostly on my phone. And this song has become pretty popular, I guess, because it reoccurs in the list fairly often. And I just wanted to read a few of the lyrics real quick to you, and I think you'll see why it kind of touched my heart. Um, it's by Kirk Franklin. So I'm giving you credit, so now I'm not going to sue if he even knows I exist, and I doubt. This is for the busted heart. This is for the question marks. This is for the outcast soul. Lost control. No one knows. Sing it for... The can't go back, sing it for the broken past, sing it for the just found out, life is now upside down. If you're looking for hope tonight, raise your hand. If you're feeling alone and don't understand, if you're fighting in the fight of your life, then stand. We're going to make it through this hand in hand. And it says, and if we fall, we fall together. If we fall, we will fall together. This is the second chance for new romance, sing it for the love the loved in vain overcame it's not too late if you're looking for hope tonight raise your hand and then of course that's the chorus and then later in the song he says if we fall we will fall together when we rise we will rise together and then that becomes the chorus and i was thinking about as i was listening to the song i was thinking about how obviously he's talking about the church you understand right talking about the kingdom of god um and really it is the kingdom of god not the church but the local church becomes the embodiment of people working together. So if you're facing a problem, you can't you can't guarantee, you can't know beyond the shadow of doubt, like, I'm short 500 bucks, and somebody's just going to step in and give you 500 bucks or whatever. It's not like that necessarily. But if you're facing a problem and you don't share the problem, you don't let other people know what's going on, then nobody can pray for you. right? Nobody can do whatever they can do. Right. And sometimes we don't want to talk about what we're facing because we don't want to admit that we're kind of causing the problem. And sometimes you need a brother or sister in Christ to say, okay, look, I love you, but what I hear you saying is this is the problem, but actually then what I see you doing is creating the problem. And so now let me tell you, if you change this, you can't guarantee the problem's going to go away, but at least you're not going to be contributing to it. And so sometimes we don't want to share it like that. And I think those reasons, there are a lot of reasons why we might not want to share it, is really hurting the church really hurting the kingdom of God. But according to what God says in His Holy Word, the church will fall together and rise together. You know, the Word says the righteous man falls seven times, gets up seven times. So we will face difficulties. We're facing difficulties now. We may see great persecution in our day. We may get in trouble as a church, or we may um, somebody might get hurt, or somebody might get sick, or whatever like that. But when one person falls, then we all sort of fall with them, and then the whole idea is we get up together. Remember back in, at East Toledo, we were doing Awana games. I don't think I've seen this game played in quite a long time now. In fact, I think my brother Tony who first brought it to Awana games, which I never saw. 
was this game where you have to sit back to back and you lock arms and then you have to stand up together. And if you if you do not cooperate very well, if you don't match your strings and your timing and, and like that, you will fall. And that's where we're at. That's where the, I believe God is saying that's where the kingdom of God is right now. That we are we are each of us trying to do our own thing that God would have us to do, and that's the right thing to do. You should do what God would have you to do. But we need to realize you cannot, you will not do it alone. There are no long ranger Christians because Ephesians 4, we're all in the church and working together and this is how you grow and succeed is when all the church works and all the church moves forward. And yeah, we're going to do different things, we're going to be different people and so on, but I really feel like um, God's word says if, if you're doing it alone and you fall, who's going to pick you up? Who is going to carry the load? Who's going to step up? Who's going to do it? Right? There have been a number of times lately where I've been in a tough spot. I've been trying to get something done. And I've had a few people around me, not only my family, but others in the church who have said, hey, you know, I think I can do a little bit of that. And I know like when Michael and, uh, and Ricky already had a vision to do something like that, but, and, but hadn't really started, when Michael said, it's like football, and I don't remember who said it, but somebody said, hey, let's talk to Ricky. And the two of them are doing, from my, from my view, my point, they're doing a fantastic job, and the kids have been really encouraged, and kids are growing and becoming, frankly, more healthy. And they're talking about God, and I'm not trying to put anybody on a pedestal, but I'm saying, Michael could just, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to take my wife, and she's going to do it with me, because that's, and we do that, right? That's what we do. But when two people in the church found a passion, we suddenly start doing it. So that, what I'm saying is, we will fall together, we will rise together. If you're trying to keep from falling on your own, first of all, you can do everything you want to keep from falling, but if you're going to fall, you're going to fall. Something's going to happen, so you can do about it. Because um, time and chance happens to everybody. The word says. And so you could fall. Then you're going to get back up. Why not fall and get back up all together? And I really thought that was powerful. And I think we, maybe sometimes we miss that because we're carrying our own burdens and we're busy and our back aches and our head aches and our money's running out or we're trying real hard to make sure our money doesn't run out. Uh, and then instead of talking with somebody and saying, hey, this is the problem I have, how can we do life together as a church? And sometimes you might hear, yeah, you've got to stop doing X. You say you have this problem, but this is what you're doing that's creating the problem. That's called accountability, and you have to, we have to submit to it. So if you, so I'm telling you, if you see me, and I'm doing something, and I'm shooting myself in the foot, and then I have a trouble walking, then you come to me and let's talk. I want to do life together. I think we should do life together. All right? That was what God, I think, was laying on my heart. Okay, so we're going to pray and transition back into the tithes and offer just a couple more songs, and then go to the Word. And as we do that, I'm going to ask Brother uh, RJ, I know you're not necessarily thinking this way already, but I'm going to ask you, Brother, if you pray for us and lead us in prayer at this time. And Father, I want to thank you for this time, uh, for this time together as we are here. Uh, pray for those who are not here. God, I pray that everyone here stays safe and encouraged. Pray for the kids as they go to their lessons. Pray for everything that's going on in the world right now. Lord, keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
Alicia, I remember, about, uh, Alicia's not in here. I remember about halfway through that last song that I forgot to send Alicia the title for the sermon today. And I was, I was thinking to myself, I wonder what she's going to do. And then I, I figured she just put up the slide from last week. Sure enough, there it is. All right. So that's the slide from last week. Uh, we have been working through uh, somewhat the book of Hebrews, but looking all over at the topic stuff as we have been looking at the transition. And we're still working on that for a while. We're about halfway through this sermon series. Uh, talking about transitioning from the foundational teachings into the deeper teachings. And as you have figured out already by the last couple, through the last couple of weeks, I'm sure, we have been t- uh, dipping our toe, so to speak, in the deeper teachings of the truths of Christ and how He would work in us ha- after having become a Christian and living for Him in the kingdom of God. Today, uh, today's sermon t- title is not that, but rather it is Lamb's Win. Uh, so, uh, as far as I know, there are no football teams out there, professional or otherwise, or no basketball teams out there, professional or otherwise, or baseball teams called the Lambs. Does anybody know differently? The Rams. Well, a Ram is not a lamb. It's got a big old helmet thing on it, its head that smacks its enemies. <laughs> Rams are very tough. You ever seen ram, male Rams buy for control of the herd? Oh, my goodness. They, they, like, it sounds like a sonic boom almost when those Rams hit like that. But anyway. I'm sure there's some Christian. You would, you would think maybe we could Google it, but I didn't find any. So, uh, Lambs Win. Today is the title of the message today. So, we've been talking through uh, a couple of key things, and um, we're going to hit that real quick just to make sure we're all on the same page, because I know some people taught the children last week and things like that, and then we'll go into the text for today. Opening with an illustration. When I was about uh, 15 or so, we went to the... Uh, I believe it was the Lucas County Fair. And at the Lucas County Fair, there's an area off to the side in the back that's away from the rides, away from all the um, booths or the games where you throw the darts and fire the beat guns and cook guns and everything like that, and away from uh, the booths where they sell the jewelry and everything like that. And they have a lot of exhibits that are kind of agricultural in nature. And as we were walking along, uh, we, I remember there was these jewelry counters on the left-hand side. We just walked from that area, and my mom was telling me how back in this other area where there's a lot of agricultural stuff, there's like good baked goods and stuff. And so like we're going to go check out the good baked goods and stuff. And we walked past a grassy area that was about 20 foot by 20 foot, and the grass was neatly cut and trimmed, and there was a tree in the middle of it. And under the boughs of that tree, but in the back of that grassy area, was a man. And I assumed he was like a farmer. He kind of looked like a farmer or whatever. And he was standing there, and he had something small in his right hand. And from that, um, uh, there was some like little clumps of uh, fluffy stuff, and I wasn't sure what it was. And it was kind of caked to his hand and caked to the whatever he was holding. And then I saw a young man, not too much older than myself, bring out um, what at the time I would have just said was a sheep. It was a, an older lamb. It was old enough to be maybe an adolescent sheep. And um, he, he brought it out and he had its arms, its, its front legs and its back legs clenched to his side like this and he had his hand around its throat like this and he had complete control of this lamb and it had lost all authority over its life and I thought, oh, this could be a bad instance. But the lamb had quite a bit of fur on it or fluff on it, wool, and he brought the lamb to the farmer and he transferred the lamb to the man that I thought was a farmer and the man uh, held the lamb down on the ground, and if I remember correctly, he held like all four of its legs, kind of by the ankle, like a like it was a big, like a bush almost, and he held it like that, and then the boy held the throat, and he sheared the wool off of the lamb, 
And meanwhile, at first, as they were transferring, the lamb was uh, screeching. It was not happy at all. And I thought, this was some kind of like animal abuse. We're having animal abuse here. And, I'm, and I was a 15-year-old crusader. And I was not a very nice guy, but I was a crusader. And whenever I would see injustice in my high school, for example, we all stood together to stop bullying. And I got in a bunch of fights because of that. I got in trouble with the school and in trouble with other students. But eventually, we pretty much put an end to bullying in our school because I was a 15-year-old crusader. And most of the kids that were in my sophomore class were as well. And uh, so I'm thinking, what are we going to do? I look at my mom and dad, like, what has happened to this poor animal? And they're shearing it. And as they're shearing the animal, it literally has lost all control. Um, it can't move. It couldn't move its legs. They were holding its legs. It couldn't move its head. It was holding its throat. Uh, and uh, it even stopped squealing. It, was, it didn't make a noise. And I thought, man, you know, that's pretty harsh. Now, if you know anything about sheep, if you don't shear a sheep, it goes badly for the sheep, right? They have to be sheared. They have to be, uh, now, that's probably because they've been sheared for generations, 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 maybe, um, but they need to be sheared. So what was actually happening there was something that needed to be happening. Uh, it was an experience that the lamb needed to go through in order to lose that coat so that then it could grow another, uh, which is what they do. But it didn't look like the lamb was winning. It looked like the lamb was getting his butt kicked. Maybe even was headed for the slaughterhouse. Okay, so I want you to bear that in mind that as we look at the text today, um, when we get there. Two things. Week before last, we talked about a new high priest. And the writer of Hebrews talked about a new high priest in the, in the argument, as part of the argument that there was a new testament or a new covenant, a new deal, if you will, that God had put in place. And with a new high priest comes a new deal. That's sort of the argument that he had made. But he talked about how this new high priest that, that was Jesus was a high priest of a higher order. Do you remember that? Was a high priest of Melchizedek. And there were two key things in there, which we covered, though, we kind of really covered it pretty well, but two key things that I want you to remember about him being a high priest of Melchizedek. And the first one was that he was a high priest with no beginning and no end. That's what Melchizedek was. We didn't know his lineage. It was not listed. It's just there he was. And Abraham gave him tithes when he came back from the battle, right? So he was a, a high priest with no beginning and no end. And that takes away a certain amount of variability. Like you don't get much change now. We've got one high priest forever. Okay? The second thing was that he was, being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, was that the author of Hebrews made the argument that the priests, the Levites, essentially had tithed to Jesus or had tithed to the high priest, the, to the order of Melchizedek, because they were at that time still generations back in the loins of Abraham when Abraham tithed, just like we were all in Adam when Adam sinned, and so we all inherited Adam's sin, sinful nature, etc. He said, the Levites who received the tithes throughout the temple age were actually in the loins of Abraham and they had tithed to this higher order, Melchizedek, by Abraham tithing. All right? So remember the new high priest ushers in a new covenant and he is of an order that is greater than the order of the Levites. In fact, he went so far as to say if he was on this earth, he would not be a priest. Right? But now he is a high priest ministering in the tabernacle in heaven, or in the temple in heaven. And then he said also that the priests, the Levites, had essentially tithed to the order of Melchizedek. The second thing, then last week we talked about how he was a final and all-sufficient sacrifice. He, 
the word sufficient can be broken down into enough and adequate. Enough means he could get the job done. Adequate means he could get the job done or more, right? And, and then we said he was an effective sacrifice. What made him, we talked about what made him an effective sacrifice. He was sinless. Um, the Bible describes Jesus as a lamb without blemish. He, there was nothing wrong with him at all. And then he was sacrificed to pay the ultimate price. Okay? And Jesus, because he was the only adequate, effective sacrifice, became the propitiation for us, the payment for our sins. Now, all of this was pursuant to this thought, and it was actually in there, and it was that there is now a new covenant. And so now, grab your Bibles, and we're going to read, and we actually read these verses last week, but today we're going to drill down on them and simplify it for our understanding. And it comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Amen. I think Miss Chris just hooted and hollered in her living room. She was watching us on Facebook. I hope she did. And if she didn't, she's now going, oh man. Alright, so Hebrews 10, and we're beginning to read in verse 15. Notice, just to prove that I'm not kidding you when I say all of this was to kind of point to the new covenant, it says, for by one offering, this is verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And it's talking about the complete sacrifice. And then 15 says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will re remember no more. Okay, so that is the passage for today. That is where we are largely focusing in on as, or as, um, as it says in our Tuesday night Bible study, reflect on those verses. All right, so let's go break it down. Where he says, and the Holy Spirit, so that's God in the Holy Spirit, he, the Holy Spirit, bears witness to us, shows us clearly, for after saying, so these are verses from the Old Testament, this is the covenant that I will make with them. So God says, I will make a covenant, a new deal, a new testament, a new plan. This is the covenant. And it implies a new covenant because he says, after those days, that's when he's going to make the new covenant, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, I will write them. So before we go any further, in this covenant, as it stands right here, who is going to do what? Who has done anything? Only God, right? Only God is doing anything in these phrases. It says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. God says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. We understand there's two parts to a covenant, but God is making the covenant and he says, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart. I hear David saying, uh, you know, the storing up the treasures of the word in your heart so that he might not sin against God, right? I hear David saying that. But truth, he says, I will put my laws upon their heart. And upon their mind, I will write them. God is the only one with any verbs. He's the only one gets any verbs in these. So when we think about the people say, well, you know, what is the law or the command of God? And they say, well, it's the Ten Commandments. Or when we talk about the law, it was the Old Testament, right? That was the rules or the laws, the governing body of commands. And God is saying, I will put those commands upon their heart. I will put those in their mind. I will write them. And he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, by the way, no, sin, no verbs in there at all, right? That whole phrase has no verbs in it. 
and their sins and their lawless deeds. A deed is not a verb. That's an action, but it's a, as a fact, right? Like um, when I say I sit, that's a verb. When I say I sat, that's a verb. When I say that's my seat, the seat is not a verb. This, the deeds are not a verb. So, and their sins and their lawless deeds, he says, I will remember no more. Meaning, those are the verbs. And who's doing them? God. God's doing them. I submit to you, when the, that lamb was being sheared, it was, its legs were still, its head was still, everything was still, and the farmer was shearing the lamb. There was no action by the lamb other than basically existing. Everything that he that was a variable for him had been taken out. Everything that he might have... He didn't even stop squealing. He was just breathing. That's it. So what do you got to do? What do you need to do to be a member of the kingdom of God? What do you need to do to belong to God? What do you need to do to be favored by God? Here it is. Nothing. I know the work of the Lord is to believe in Jesus Christ. And we talked about how... Uh, in line with our, with our foundational teachings, how faith must be there, and that opens the channel to God so His grace can be delivered, right? Because whoever really wants to receive from the Lord has to believe in the Lord and has to believe that the Lord rewards those who seek Him, right? I understand there must be faith in that sense. I'm not ruling that out. But here's what happens. If the lamb wants to resist and the farmer wants to take care of the lamb, all you get is the farmer doing what the farmer's going to do and the lamb trying to resist it. <clears throat> and we were once objects of wrath, right? His resistance, his pushing back against us as we were doing that which is not good for us. He says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now this is a promise, it's open, that he's going to do this for anybody who is his people. Right? Anybody who trusts in him, anybody who allows it. Is it dangerous and could it slip into a universalistic uh, teaching where we say everybody's going to be saved? Sure. What he's really saying is everybody has the possibility of being saved. Now, as he was leading into that text that we just read, there were a number of quotes that he drew out of Psalm chapter 40, or Psalm 40. And I want to go there and read Psalm 40 at this time. We're reading it as an example, and I think the author of Hebrews was reading it as that same example. We're reading it as an example of one who understood the, the nature of a relationship with God. You follow my thinking? It's written by David. God would call David a man after God's own heart. God would call him that. A man after God's own heart. And David wrote this Psalm, Psalm 40, and so we, we can read it as an example of a prayer or really became a song that they would sing, uh, their version of singing. Uh, this was written for the choir director, it says in the little subtext there. So it became a song. But the bottom line is, this is David's understanding of a relationship with God. Here we go. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Again, what is he doing there? What is the action of the man in the relationship with God? Essentially nothing. He's waiting for God. Right? He's waiting for God to act. He says, And he inclined to me and heard my cry. God intervened on my behalf. He listened to what I was saying. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon rock, making my footsteps firm. Who did it? God did it. God grabbed me from that yuck and he put me on that firm. That's what the author, who is David, who is a man after God's own heart, that's how he words it. And he says, And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. 
So basically, that verse, he's saying, God put the new song. So when you sing, it should be God putting the song in your mouth. right? A song of praise to our God. And then there's a parallelism there, which kind of infers that this is essentially why or what the song is about. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. So God was saying, don't worry about it. You don't got to rush. You got to beat yourself up. Many will see and trust in the Lord. I will take care of it. So, so far, where is the, you need to do what God wants you to do? You need to step up and do these certain things in order for the kingdom to advance. It's not here yet. We haven't gotten there yet. Right? But so far, he took David out of the muck and put him on solid ground. He put a new song in his mouth, a song of praise to his God, which helped David to see that that many would see and fear God and many will trust in the Lord. Is that not already so? Now, we've talked about we don't know how many are truly trusting in the Lord and how many aren't. That's not our job. But here, I think there are many who would profess, I am trusting in the Lord, right? So many have. God sort of prophesied it through David. David could have a a song of praise and he could feel that God had set him on firm ground because he knew God was going to take care of it. Verse 4, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. So now he says, blessed or spoken well of by God is the man who trusts in the Lord. And the verb there is trust now and continues to trust in the future. Whose trust continues. That he he is found faithful. He continually trusting in the Lord. He said, and he gives some alternatives. How blessed is a man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. So where is the labor? Where is the work? Where is the list of things that we must do? Well, if anything has been added to the list, it's just one thing, right? Trust in the Lord. I submit to you that there comes a moment in time when trusting the Lord, it really isn't something that you do. It's not an action. It's just an existence. Okay? If I'm dangling at the end of a rope over a cliff and the rope is tied around my underarms uh, because I realize I'm going to get tired, then it, after about, I'm going to say I'm not that strong, maybe about three minutes of hanging by that rope at the absolute most, I am now trusting in the rope. I, the rope is tied around me. I could cling to the rope if the knot slips, but I already know I'm beyond my endurance. I'm now trusting in the rope. If you're washed overseas, overboard, out in the roaring sea, and you have a life jacket on, you might swim for a while. You might try to make distance, swim back to the boat, things like that. When the boat is gone long out of sight and you're long exhausted and you've got nothing left, you can talk about swimming all you want. You can kick your legs just gently, hoping to last for many hours, keeping yourself moving in some direction or whatever. But the fact is you're trusting in the life jacket. The life jacket is going to do what the life jacket is going to do and you're trusting it to keep you afloat. And it will because that's what it was. That's what it is. That's what it's created for. Well, God wasn't created, but when you're trusting in the Lord, you're at the end of your ability. You're beyond your strength. You're beyond your actions, and you're saying, okay, God's got me. Right? Just like the life jacket or the rope that's tied under your arms. So I submit to you that so far still, in all of this relationship that David is picturing for us with God, there is literally nothing to do. There's no to-do list in this, correct? We still haven't gotten there. And what have we gotten, by the way, while we have not done anything or found any to-do list? We have been removed from the miry muck, the mess, set on firm ground, given a song to sing, an uplifted heart, 
And all of this for nothing but recognizing who God is and trusting Him. And that's it. After all our efforts and everything, we've gotten all of that. Now you remember, all of this lines up perfectly with the foundational teachings. I submit to you that David was not born under the New Testament. You understand? He lived a long time before Jesus was born. And all of the events of the New Testament took place from when Jesus was born. There's a few casting backs, rememberings, but basically it's all New Testament. So Jesus, David was not born under the New Testament, but is he, does he not have a picture of it? Is he not understanding that ultimately this New Testament will come? That's what Psalm 40 is all about. How does David know that he has been removed from the miry muck and set on solid ground and that God's going to take... How does he know that? Nothing but trust. He trusts in God. Remember, he's called a man after God's own heart. So what does God want from us? He wants us to trust him. That's it. And for, for just the trust, there is all of this. But he goes on a little bit more. He says in 5, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which thou hast done. God has shown his power. He has given you reason to trust in him. And thy thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with thee. So all of God's wonders and the past things that he's done, it demonstrates him and his thoughts toward us. No one, nothing should tempt us away from trusting in God because there isn't anything else that compares with who God is. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. You could spend your whole life trying to list out all the awesome things that God had done. By the time you got to about 100, 150, you'd forget the first ones and you might have to go back and look and make sure you didn't list them twice and things like that. But God's many blessings are endless to count. Verse 6, Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. Now hold on a second. Everything so far through verse 5, <clears throat> everything so far through verse 5, has been the result of us simply trusting in God. And the last part of it was evidences for why we should trust in God. Now we're going to get into addressing some things that we've been told we should do for God. Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. So they were trying to do sacrifices and meal offerings and David now says, that's not really what God wants. My ear, my ears thou hast opened. Burnt offerings and sin offering thou hast not required. In other words, in the New Testament, we can clearly see it, but even in David's day, he could catch a glimpse that God, that God was really not about you sacrificing and giving him stuff. That's not really what it's all about. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. Okay, so figure it out. Started in the muck. Trusted God. God lifted him out of the muck, put him on solid ground, gave him a bunch of stuff to do, right? No. He lifted him out of the muck, put him on solid ground, and now, as he realizes, there is literally nothing that he has to do. It's all taken care of, no matter how good or bad things look. There's literally nothing he has to do. Then out of that flows a desire to do something. And what does he say he he'll do? Verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. I submit to you that where in Hebrews the author says that God will put the laws on their heart and on their mind, He will write them. 
And we want to say, okay, what does that mean exactly? It means that if the law is on your heart and in your mind, you will want to do the will of God. Not for any gain for yourself. Not for any gain for anybody that you love. But because the law is on your heart. Because you have met the living Savior and He has taken up reverence. I'm sorry. He has taken up a position in your heart. He has begun to live in your heart with reference to His living in your heart, you will want to do what He wants to do. I submit to you that if you willingly want to do what God does not want you to do, Jesus probably does not live in your heart. At best, if you willingly want to do what God does not want you to do, you are dragging along the sinless Savior God into the midst of the miry pit again, which He willingly lifted you up out of and put you on solid ground. David wasn't saved by Jesus, not the way he understood it anyway. He was saved by the way that God would make. But what was that way? That way was Jesus, is Jesus, will always be Jesus. Why? Because he is a high priest by a higher order, always able to make intercession for us before the throne of God. Because he is a full and sufficient sacrifice, the complete propitiation for all sins. Propitiation does not just mean that you don't get punished. Right? That's mercy. It does not just mean that you get forgiven, which means that the person treats you with respect afterwards and loves you and whatever. It, propitiation means grace. It means God gives you what you don't deserve because Jesus paid for everything that you did so that you won't get what you do deserve. So God gives you grace. He immediately, out of the welling up of the power of God in him, just having the law in his heart, just like he could... Not, not even like we can where the Holy Spirit is in us, interpreting the law for us, helping to understand, witnessing to us that we are saved. But just like he could, in the Old Testament, he was already welling up with a desire to do what God wanted him to do because the law was within his heart. Not written there by God necessarily, but memorized there by his intentional choice to follow and trust in the Lord. Verse 9 says, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. In other words, there it is now, the word righteousness, meaning that God takes you from the miry pit, sets you up, pit, sets you up on that solid foundation, and you get His righteousness. And in the New Testament, which Jesus said, many would fear and trust in the Lord. I'm sorry, David wrote, many would fear and trust in the Lord. In the New Testament, is represented by we get His righteousness. Right? So he says, I have told them that God's righteousness is available. I have said that in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, Thou knowest. So he's driven by what's inside of him to, to tell the truth about Jesus. I have not hidden Thy righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of the faithfulness and of Thy, of thy faithfulness and Thy salvation. I have not concealed Thy loving kindness and Thy truth from the great congregation. In other words, I am bringing the message. Because I have been lifted from the miry pit up onto solid ground, I am telling the truth. We proclaim what we have seen and heard. 1 John 1.3 David was foreseeing the New Testament, the New Covenant, and, and I submit to you that essentially the church was supposed to be made over into Jesus' image, and David foresaw himself made over into the image of the Messiah. And so he was living the way he was supposed to live and doing what he was supposed to do, not because that would earn or gain him anything, or not because he thought he should, not because 
He thought God might get mad at him if he didn't. Oh, that's possibly true, by the way, but that wasn't why. It was because he had the law on his heart and in his mind, and he knew God's great faithfulness and God's great kindness, and how could he keep that to himself? Verse 11, Thou, O Lord, wilt not withhold thy compassion from me. Thy loving kindness and thy truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. Notice how bad he was seeing things were around him. My iniquities have overtaken me. The things that he had done wrong were impacting him. So that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And my heart has failed me. He was recognizing just how wretched a person he was. Yet at the same time he said, O Lord, Thou, O Lord, will not withhold Thy compassion from me. Thy loving kindness and Thy truth will continually preserve me. I'm going to tell you the God's honest truth. You're a wicked piece of dirt in your flesh, and so am I. We are driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We want what we want when we want it, and we'll do anything necessary to get it. That's the bottom line. And that, that is still even true of some people who profess to be Christians. They're driven more by that than by what's right. And before you say, that could never be me, I want you to think about the last time you were driving in traffic and some idiot cut you off or got behind you and blared his horn or drove by you and flipped you off because he didn't like the way you were driving. And think about what your response was. I want you to think about the last time you were sitting in the drive-thru and you'd already ordered your food and it had been five minutes since you were at the microphone and you're going, what the heck is going on? I want you to think about the last time somebody left something in your path and you nearly tripped or slipped over it. How did you respond? I want you to think about the last time you were asked to give or serve outside what you were comfortable to do. To give beyond tithing. To serve beyond the hours that you thought were present in the day. To put aside something with your family or something that you already had on your schedule. It was previous, previously scheduled. It was the first thing on your schedule, but now an opportunity comes to serve the Lord. And you have to choose between the thing that you previously scheduled or serving God. I know God didn't, at this point, hasn't asked us to do anything to receive all the blessings that David is talking about but driven by the Word in us and His will for us. If that's who you are, if it's written on your heart, how could you let anything interfere with the outflow of what is written on your heart? How could you ever back down? How could you ever get tired? How could you ever quit? How could you ever budget or plan or schedule God into a box? Verse 13, David writes, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. When someone come against him, instead of striking out in his own power, he commits them into the hands of the Lord. Verse 15, Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let those who love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified! 
here is a verb. The Lord be magnified. He is so good and so powerful, so capable. And we ought to say, He ought to be magnified. Glory to God in the highest. Verse 17. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. There comes that moment in time where you are faced with an outcome. You foresee it and you don't like it. You've heard of foxhole conversions. Men that were facing real danger could have died any minute. Fire flying left and right, grenades, mortars, bombers, strafing helicopters, whatever. And they cried out to God and they said, God, save me from this pit of doom that I find myself in. And if you will save me, I will live for you forever. And then they come home from that mess. And I don't know how many foxhole conversions taken, how many don't. There's no way of knowing what the percentages are. But there are people who live for the Lord, who promised they would live for the Lord. They made a deal with God and they said, if you'll save me, I'll live for you the rest of my days. And they did it. I had a good friend who that was his story. In some ways, that may be your story. Not a foxhole per se, in some cases, but a moment where you saw the outcome going away that you didn't want it to go and you made a deal with God. When I was unsaved a number of times, I tried to make a deal with God. There are three things I want you to see. And the first thing is, there is a deal. There is a deal already on the table. And when you're in negotiations, I, I, I thought a lot about negotiations in preparing this message over the last roughly two and a half days or so. I was thinking a lot about negotiations. And I found some pretty interesting illustrations of negotiations uh, in our everyday reality. The line of scrimmage in a football game. That is a picture of negotiation. It's five big guys or how many ever are on the line trying to move five other big guys or trying to make a hole to let the quarterback through or trying to block the hole or trying to get to the quarterback, trying to make a hole so they can get through to the quarterback, trying to break up the play. That's all negotiations for what's actually going to happen with the ball. That's what it is. No, one time I remember I was watching football on TV and um, it was in the early days and, and sometimes we're a little spoiled now when we watch sports. So, they really have good cameras and really have good audio equipment and stuff like that. You know, there was a, a day where you really, when you would watch football, and most of us probably remember this, going back 10, 15 years ago, you watch football or any sport on TV and there was really very little sound from the court or from the field. You didn't hear that bam when... Uh, a wide receiver got slammed by a you know, cornerback after catching the ball. You didn't have that slam and that on the, you didn't have that noise, that sound effect. Because parabolic microphones were not they didn't have the technology to track them. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but over football, they, there's a wire cam. And so the camera actually goes over the field and at times you'll be able to see it and whatever. And they're pretty careful to try to keep it out of the view of the other cameras and stuff like that. But occasionally you can see the wire cam. And it's literally right over top of the play as things are happening, you know. And, so, and not just football, but basketball and baseball and all the sports are like that. And, and now, this, I remember the first time I ever heard the sound in what they call the, what do they call that zone? It's um, 
It's the zone of conflict between the offensive and the defensive line right there in the trenches. First time I ever heard the sound. And while I had, I'd always kind of fancied myself, you know, I could have been cool. I could have been a pro football player or whatever. You know, I could have been a lineman if I bulked up, you know, and I fancied myself to play whatever. And I heard the sound of what it was like in the trenches. And I was like, uh-uh, that's nowhere I ever want to be. Because the slam and the force, and those guys are pushing on each other with hundreds or even maybe thousands of pounds cumulative, you know, and they're hitting each other as hard as they possibly can, and, and they're slapping each other's arms all the way, and they're performing all these blocking stunts and drills and everything in there, and I get it, but the point is, I heard that sound, I'm like, I don't want to be there. Listen to me. You do not ever in your lifetime under any circumstances, want to be at the point of negotiation with God. Ever. You know how I know this for a fact? Because let me tell you where the point of negotiation with God actually is. It's pictured in the Bible. It's not technically with God, but it's that point of negotiation. It's in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Are you remembering it now? The rich man is burning in hell. And he's trying to negotiate. He says, let Lazarus come here and just dip his finger in the cool water that I see over there. Let him come here and just put his finger in my mouth. The leper, the poor man, I wouldn't even give scraps for my table. He's dirty his whole life. Probably never had a shower, but he looks really good to me right now. Let him come and just put his finger in my mouth. And the angel, who was God's representative, says, no. There's a gulf between us and there. No one crosses over. He said, well, just, just let somebody go and tell, I have four brothers, let them go and tell them where, what's happened to me so that they will repent. And he said, no, you, you have Moses and the prophets. If you will not listen to God's law, and here in the subtext there, if in your lifetime you will not take God's law into your heart, then you would not believe even if a man rose from the dead. And there's that picture of the New Testament, the New Covenant. You never in your lifetime ever want to come to the point of negotiation with God. You know, the funny thing about negotiation, when you negotiate with somebody bigger, more powerful, or stronger, you always lose. There was a story about a, a man who was rising in politics and, and he was becoming, there was a good possibility he was going to become president. And I'm purposely not naming him because I don't want this to become a political thing. But um, we knew somebody who had had business dealings with this man, with his, one of his properties, investment properties. And they were refusing to pay, I wouldn't call him a friend, as an associate of Sherry's, were refusing to pay that man for work that he had done. And he said, we're just not going to do it. And he said, well, I'm going to get a lawyer and sue. And he said, well, go ahead. We have lawyers on retainer. When you go up in negotiations versus a big company, They've got lawyers on retainer. You open negotiations against millionaires. I know you think we could sue if we slip or trip and like deep pockets. They got a lot of money. I might make some money. If things go bad, I'll sue them, right? And it's a litigious society, so everybody can sue and everybody can find a lawyer. They love to go after. But when you sit down with your little lawyer that works $90 an hour, you go sit down across the table from seven lawyers that each work for $200 an hour. The big guy is not the guy you want to be negotiating with if you can help it. So our our little friend um, was in the state of Indiana. He's like, I, well, you know, I, uh, 
I want my money. I want to be paid. We're talking about like hundred thousand dollars or something like that, and they were only going to pay him like ten percent. And he's like, I want my money, and they said, tough. So I'll get a lawyer and sue. And they said, go ahead. We have lawyers on retainer. Then he said, well, yeah, but your guy's running for president. So here's what I'll actually do. I'll get a hold of every media outlet, Associated Press, TV. I'll put it on social media. It will go worldwide that you're refusing to pay me. And I have the proof. He had the proof. He had the paperwork. He had everything. He deserved to be paid. There was no. He said, I'll put this out worldwide. And the check arrived the next day. Remember I said, you don't want to negotiate with the big guy. Because the big guy always has everything in his favor. The underdog. That's what you become when you negotiate with the big guy. Except you thought I was going to say that the big guy in that story was the guy running for president who owed the $100,000, didn't you? Well, that's what I would have thought too. But it wasn't, was it? See, there's already a deal on the table. When they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they began to think, oh, actually, he was the underdog. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't the Son of God like some thought he was. He wasn't the awaited Messiah. He was really just nobody. He's useless. He's dying on the cross. He's useless. I submit to you that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he had more power in his little one molecule of his finger, finger than all the people that put him on the cross. He wasn't on the cross because they put him on the cross. He was on the cross because he willingly laid down his life so that he could take it up again. Jesus has incarnate power. And you can look at him as the underdog if you want, but I submit to you, if you will, you will arrive at the point of negotiation with God. You will think, Jesus doesn't have a right to command me. Jesus doesn't have a right to want me to do certain things. Jesus doesn't have a right to lead me. You'll be thinking about how you don't have to follow certain laws or rules. And that is infantile thinking at best. That's barely in the foundations of Christianity. You're back to debating whether or not pe people can be saved who have, say they have faith but literally don't do anything about, well, okay, faith without works is dead. So I think that's probably not true. I believe that scripture. So I think you probably should do the things that God wants you to do. Otherwise, I don't think you have faith. But that's you to figure out. And they go, well, I think I do have faith. So I'm not going to do it. I know, faith, I know it says faith without works is dead. But I believe just believing in God is the works that you have to do. So I'm going to be saved that way. And we're back to that infant teaching, that foundation again. But no, we're past the foundation. We're going into the deep teachings. We're crossing the transition. If you're not dull of hearing or walking off the way, then you're going into the deeper teachings. And here in the deeper teachings, this is what you will find. What you do for Jesus, you do not for Jesus because He commands you. You don't do it for Jesus because He told you to. You do it for Jesus because there is no other existence for you. There is no other option. There is nothing left. He is not the underdog and neither am I. I will not be downtrodden. Yes, I'll be surrounded by enemies, but I know from where my help comes. Yes, I will fall, but the righteous man falls and gets up again seven times. There is already a deal on the table. Take it! It's the best you're going to get. Lest you find yourself begging for a drip of water from a dead man who did take the deal. You want to negotiate with God? You want to say, God, I'll do what you want me to do as long as, and as soon as you say, as long as, I submit to you, you are probably not saved. 
Because saved means the law of God is written on your heart. And that means if the law of God is written on your heart, the actions therein contained flow out of you so abundantly that you're doing things, and instead of doing things and going, oh, <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Well, that was really dumb. That was not what I wanted to do. We do things and go, I didn't even know I could do that. I didn't think I was capable of sharing the gospel or teaching a Bible lesson or bringing Christ up or singing a song of praise or serving what I feel like I could barely get up out of my chair in the opportunities and I jumped up and did it. Running beyond what I can do. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, this is how Paul writes it. He says, For the love of Christ compels us, or in the New American Standard says, controls us, and I'll come back to that in a second. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. You realize that's the New Testament. That is the, the basis for everything that we believe. Jesus died for all, and if he substitutionary death died for all, then we all died. And we, we believe that he died. And we believe that he died for us. So if you believe that he died, and you believe that he died for you, you just go, well, he died for me to pay for my sins, but I'm kind of okay where I'm at. No. You believe that he died, and he died for you, then you died. The you that was ceased to exist. And then he goes on in that same chapter and says, and all old things have passed away. That's what he's talking about. You died. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you died. And when you died, the righteousness of Christ came on you. And now you live righteous. Not because it's the right thing to do. Not because it will make God happy. Not because God says so and if I don't do it, I'm afraid of what He'll do. Not because I felt His wrath before and I don't want to feel it now. All of those things are true. But that's not why. We do it because there, there is an engine inside of us that has such excess power that it just has to do what it was made for. You have to. And we come back to that word that he used, compelled. And in the Greek, it could be translated as compelled or controlled. It's compelled. Uh, I was watching Ariana play a video game that she recently started playing where you take care of horses and you go on these little quests and stuff. And, and it's kind of fun. We kind of like helping her because she has to read the text and she's not reading all that well yet. She's getting there, but she's not reading all that well yet. And in there, there was a, she went on a quest to move these uh, wild horses or stallions that didn't have saddles on them, but technically they were probably trained. But anyway, to move these horses from one place to another. And it was like down this winding path and around the cliff, whatever. And the text kept popping up, just get, to the cl get close to the horses and continue to push them in the direction that they will go. And so the horses would stop periodically along the way and she would ride her horse up in the video game, mind you. She would ride her horse up and she'd get close to them. As soon as she got close to them, they would turn and they would go the way they were supposed to go. And sometimes I think that's the picture that we have of our Christianity. I go a little ways, but then, you know, I get tired, I get slack, and I get tempted, I get struggled, I get distracted, I want my money, and I don't want to give it to God, whatever. And then we think, well, again, God comes along, and He gives us this little loving, kind nudge to go in the right direction, or He just gets close to us, and we sense His presence, we realize that maybe it's not quite going right, and we go in the way we're supposed to go. That is not what Paul wrote. The picture that Paul had of the love of Jesus is this. A farmer holding all four legs with his mighty hand and clutching his neck so that the lamb can literally do nothing except let him do. Let the farmer do what he intends to do. 
That is the picture of the love of Christ that Paul writes about. We as lambs submit completely the control of our life. If God says to you, you can never have another piece of cake, or God says you'll never actually have another dollar, you'll wander the face of the earth until your shoes wear out, and you'll only have shoes if you get them from a charity because you're never going to have money again. If God put, makes that the situation of your life, then that's the situation of your life. And the love of Christ says that we adapt to that. We say, okay, yes, God, if that's the situation of my life that you want for me, I don't want it. I don't understand it. But the love of Christ compels me to want what you want, whatever that is. So if you want to make my job to wander the earth and wear out shoes and never have money and live on charity from other people and be a wandering preacher of the gospel, and I'm not saying that God would ever do that. I've heard of people who say that God has done that. I'm not saying He would ever do that. But the point is, think of the worst thing that you think could ever happen to you. And the love of Christ compels you this way. Whatever the worst thing that you could think of, you survive it, you're still here, but the worst thing you could ever think of and you have to live with it for the rest of your life, that worst thing. Some of us, by the way, have already had some of those things happen to us. And the love of Christ says this, that you will take that, that lousy, stinking, I hate it, I don't want it, I don't want nothing to do with it situation, and you will embrace it and say, out of it, I will now do what God would have me to do with that. Sometimes we're going through stuff and we want, to, we want to deal with God. Listen to me. You don't ever in your lifetime want to come to the position of negotiating with God. You will lose. God has been the mightiest and strongest that ever lived and the meekest that ever lived. So whether you think you are strong because you are created in His image, which means you only have some of His power at best, or you think you are strong because you have a little money, time, capabilities, health, whatever. You've risen above your situation. Things have gotten better. And you're comparing yourself to people who have it really bad off. They're worse than you. I say, I'm not worse. At least I'm not as bad off as they are or whatever. Neither place are you in a place to negotiate with God. God already has a deal on the table. And the love of Christ compels us. Therefore all died, verse 15 says, and He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. You hear it? There are no rules. There is only us living for the One who died in our stead. Say, but what about, should I lie? No, you shouldn't lie. But you shouldn't have to look at a command of the Old Testament to know that you shouldn't lie. That which is welling up inside you and blossoming out of you in the love of Christ, would Jesus lie? If you're living for the one who died for you, then you wouldn't lie. You don't even need a rule. But Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we can look at what the Old Testament says to get a picture of the previous deal to help us better understand the current deal. You say, well, I don't believe that's the only time that there's negotiations. I don't believe that it's only in hell. There might be another in the New Testament. It's found in Mark chapter 12. We're almost through. Mark chapter 12, verse 29-39, there is a moment. It says, uh, 
Jesus was asked uh, a prolonged question, which I'm not going to bother to read, but it was about if men take a wife and the men die and they, the woman never has children and then he dies and his brother takes her and then he dies and his brother takes her and so on. They asked this convoluted question, basically, to Jesus. And they said, who, uh, who will be her husband in the afterlife? And you understand what the question was aimed at, right? They were, they were Sadducees who were asking and they didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection. They didn't believe that there was a life after this one. And so Jesus answers them and they go on. The, conversa- the topic of conversation also goes on to talk about the true command, if you will, of what God would have us to do. And out of that, this is what Jesus said. He said, the, uh, Jesus answered, The foremost is hear, O Israel. This is the command. The foremost is hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. So the scribe who knows the law is agreeing with Jesus. And to love him with all heart, with all understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as himself, as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices and all the things that you can do in your life. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligent, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So Jesus answered their question about the resurrection by saying that God was the God of Abraham and if he's the God of Abraham and Jacob, then he is the God of the living, not of the dead, so there clearly is a resurrection, and then went on into this discussion about the commands of God, and then when he gets to the end, after they have been trying him and testing him, right, look at what happens. When Jesus saw that, or when Jesus saw that he, the scribe, had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far, not in, but not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. See, when you negotiate with God during this lifetime, you are close to the kingdom of God, but can never be in the kingdom of God. You follow? You can never promise God certain things and for that receive salvation because that salvation has already been purchased. I went to a flea market. I saw a brass horn on the, on the table. And I wanted to buy it. It was kind of medieval. It was long like this. You know, like they used to announce kings or queens. coming. I thought, that's kind of cool. Well, this lady wanted like 15 bucks for it. And I was debating if I had about $20 in my pocket. I'm like, I think I'd buy that for 15 bucks and put it on my wall. It'd be kind of cool. I like the idea of it. Might use it for an object lesson, right? It'd be kind of cool. And I walk around the flea market and I saw it. And I thought, well, it's pretty expensive. I'm not, I'm not going to buy it right now. I'll just mark where it's at and then I'll come back to it. So I came back to the table and there was a, a guy looking at it and then he moved around the end of the table and didn't immediately buy it. And I said to her, I said, I'll give you uh, $7 for it. And I thought, you know, she might counter whatever and come up with a price. And, and she said, no. She said, I think I can get 15 out of it. And as I stood there and said, I'll give you $7 for it, the guy who had just been looking at it, he, she said, you know, the, and while he, right after that, she said, the, guy, the brass that's in it's probably worth eight bucks. And she said, I think I can get 15 out of it. And the guy that was looking at it before I came bought it. He said he paid $15. So while I was negotiating to buy the horn, he bought it for the price that I could have bought it for. And that's what's going to happen. If you enter into negotiations, you're close to buying it, but you ain't ever going to buy it. Because Jesus already bought it. 
It's already paid for. It's already done. All your talk of, God, if you'll save me, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. That works for people who have no knowledge of God. It works for people like the lady in India, the Arabic lady who was fleeing from the tsunami, and she said, God, if you'll save me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And he said, run to the Christian church building instead of to the mosque. She ran to the Christian church building and then for years afterwards, and maybe even still, traveled the world telling people how the Christian God saved her and she converted from Islam. God can save people, and it works for people who have no real knowledge other than the creation. But if you enter into negotiations with God, if you believe that God exists, and then enter into negotiations with God, and you say, if you do this, I'll do that, or whatever, you may be close to the kingdom of God, but you will never get in. That's why they stop talking. So here's what I want to say to you. There's a deal already on the table. Take it or shut up. There's a deal already on the table. Take it or say nothing. Don't, don't try to get a better deal. Don't try to talk God into doing it your way. Your way is not as good as His way. God doesn't sit down with any lawyers because He doesn't need any. God doesn't negotiate under your terms. You just say, God save me, and that's it. And then it's settled. Let Him lift you from the mire up onto solid ground. And then feel the righteousness of Christ and the love of Christ and let it control and compel you to take you wherever your life will take you, living for Him every moment of every day without negotiation. Not because you have a list of rules or laws you have to file. Those things will be in your heart. You will automatically know. You've probably never read certain verses in certain places in the Bible, and yet you will know and feel what you are supposed to do because you will be led by the Lord who is living inside you. The deal is already in the table. Take it or shut up. And the last thing to see in there is that silence. There is no other deal. Follow or be stuck. See, and not asking any more questions, they didn't suddenly accept Jesus. And negotiating with God and finding that there was no winning, there was no way it was working out, it wasn't going to take them into the kingdom of God or take them into heaven for eternity, they didn't suddenly win. They didn't get anywhere, they got stuck. As if the farmer, instead of shearing the sheep, had wrapped his legs in rope, gagged his mouth so he could never eat or drink again, and then left that lamb laying under the tree. Our farmer is not like that. He's got a hold of you because he knows what's best for you. He's got a hold of you because he wants to do with you, if you're willing, to you, if you're not, what needs to be done. Now, for all I know, the lamb that was clutched by that farmer that day, maybe he stopped whining because he had figured it out. Because he realized he wasn't really in danger or whatever. From the look in his eyes, I don't really think that was it. I think he was just scared to death. Like, this was it. I'm done. I nothing I can do. And that's exactly where we ought to be before we think about negotiating with Jesus. You want to get unstuck? You want to get unsilent? You want to get undark? Unmired? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him with all that you are. It's not a work about walking forward. Even confessing, it's not a work. You're just telling others as it flows out of you. If you have believed and received the grace of Christ, the next thing you're going to want to do is tell anybody who will listen the fact that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just automatic. Because of who He is. Because of what He's done. The negotiations are closed.
at the negotiations, everybody that had lived previously that believed in Jesus as the Messiah was saved. The thief who was on the cross who sort of defended Jesus and called Jesus righteous and said he doesn't deserve this, he was saved. Everybody that came after the cross who trusted in Jesus as the way and completely submitted themselves to him were saved. I don't know who they were because their names were not recorded except in the Lamb's Book of Life. But here are some people who are being asked to trust Jesus this way. Yes, it's a deeper teaching. Because in the shallows, you find the fundamentals where you say, well, now that you're saved, you really should do this, and you really should do that, and you really ought to do this, and you really ought not to do that. But that's not where we live. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're moving into the deeper teachings, then out of you ought to flow an abundant need, like gasping for oxygen, or coming after something to drink when you haven't had anything and you've been out in the heat for 10 hours. There ought to be a desperate need to do what God would have you to do. And if you have that, then you don't need rules. I'm asking you, and I believe God is asking us, I believe that Jesus was asking us to come into the presence of a God who loves us, who has purchased us with the ultimate price, who has made the ultimate arrangement. Do you have to fully understand it? No. Do you have to fully understand what you'll go through? No. But if His law is in your heart and on your mind, you will be forever His. And out of the righteousness that He gives you, you will do right. But those who stay in the shallows and just try to find the rules and follow them will not make the transition because they've become dull of hearing. They cannot hear God saying, I did this for you. I've already brought you from there to here. How could you think that I would abandon you now? Just let me do what I'm trying to do. Let me take you where I'm trying to take you. Trust me. But we still find things in the Bible that say, do this or do that. And we chafe against them. I'm asking you. David is asking you. Jesus is asking you. Won't you come with me into the presence of a God who loves you and live for Him who died for you rather than living for you? That's the deal. Take it or leave it. This time we're going to have a song of invitation. It's an opportunity to respond. If you're online and you're thinking this through, you can respond right there in the comments. If you're with us today and you're in this room and you realize... I have not trusted God this way. And one of two things is true. Either A, you've stayed in the shallow waters because you're afraid of where that will take you. You're afraid of what that will look like. You're still trying to be obedient, trying to do things that you know you're supposed to do instead of finding within you this eternal power source that makes it almost impossible to do wrong. Because you're still in the foundational teachings. Or the other possibility is that you're not saved at all. You've not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and truly trusted Him with your life. And if that is so, you need to accept Jesus and trust Jesus today. There's no negotiating. You don't have to walk down the aisle, but you do have to accept and trust. You do have to enter into this relationship.
It's the only way. It's the only deal on the table. Would you sing this closing hymn with me? And if the Lord so leads, you can walk forward to the front of the room and share with us what God has laid on your heart. You're not coming to me. You're not coming to take my hand. You just come and stand before the room and say, this is what God is doing in me today. As we sing this song, that the Lord needs you to respond and do so.
Uh, but more important than the time limit or even the process is that we do what God would have us to do. So uh, we'll be in the cafeteria for the team and meeting after everyone has a break to get themselves organized and whatever. Um, and then uh, search out what God, what God's will would be for the ministries of our church. Let me pray for us and we'll be through. Oh God, you are the author of the Old Covenant and the New. I've heard it said that the Old Covenant can be seen as having the New Covenant inside of it. And I know your word says it's just the opposite. That the Old Covenant finds its fulfillment, its end, if you will, in the New Covenant. A deal forever on the table. The kind of deal that any fool would take if he just believed it. To have all that you would do in us and for us and on us, with us and when necessary, to us. Thank you, God, for giving us this creation to live in. Our eyes are open. We see it's flawed and messed up, that the sins of man have messed up the planet, and that all creation is groaning in the day of redemption. We see that clearly. We also see that all creation still testifies about you. Our challenge today is are we able? Are we able to fully commend ourselves into your hands and just trust you? Without, without knowing everything that you intend to do or where you're going to take us. Without setting parameters or rules or guidelines to keep us from sin. But rather, just letting you guide us. When necessary, prune us. Compel us and control us. Removing other options. And there are no other options. Lord, we ask you for wisdom and discernment, for strength to stand on this firm ground that you've given us, to proclaim what you've done, all that we've seen and heard and all that we will and all that we've read and all that we believe. And we would let nothing restrain us, let nothing stand in our way, that as we trust you and flex those spiritual muscles of who we are in Christ, we would see the world around us transformed. We pray for our hurting brothers and sisters. We pray for our nation and its leadership. We pray for our nation as we go into voting days. The Christians would show up at the polls and just say, I want to vote the way that my God wants me to, whatever that is. And that the Christians would be able to hear you tell them what to do. Not just in the voting booth, but on the street, in the yard. We would be comforted and reminded if we hear the story of little Amelia about coming to pick up garbage on the church lawn. Lord, the people would know across the city that the New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is here. But we didn't close. We're not going to close. We're going to keep doing what you'd have us to do and they can come and hear the word preached or, or listen online. However, that the Lord leads them that then as you move them, they might become part of this fellowship, that we might all together strain to move forward and grow up reaching new heights in Jesus. Sometimes we will need to make what we think are sacrifices. 
we would be wise, I suppose, not to think of them as sacrifices, because you are not happy with sacrifices, but rather with the soul that trusts in you. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us give trust, help us receive trust, to help us be your people in your kingdom, your citizens, doing what the kingdom is doing. Ask you to be with us during the break and again at the team leader meeting and again as we spend time with our families this evening, which I hope people have the opportunity to do that. And Lord, may these days, amidst the pandemic, when hundreds of thousands of families have already been horribly impacted in our country by the loss of a loved one, and then on top of that, by loss of a job, stay-at-home order, <clears throat> people around them were filled with fear, people around them were filled with aggression, the civil unrest. Lord, in these days, in interesting times, may we be found a light to lead people to you. We commit ourselves to that, whatever you would do, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. This then concludes our services. Uh, we will, those of us who are attending the team, will convene in the cafeteria in maybe five minutes or so, wherever people meet. Okay. God bless you today. If you listen to it online, God bless you today.